Let me read 11 and 12. We'll walk through a little bit, and we'll hit a spot where I'm just going to kind of pull back from the text, and we're going to look at one issue, uh, that being pornography in particular. Peter writes, and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, war, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's so incredibly important for us that before we ever get to a point where we want to call people out of any individual sin, that Christian, you understand who you are and where you are positionally before God. You see, because if we, if we invert this order, if we, if we go to people and we say, look, you need to understand me, you need to hear this, and we're guilting them into correct behavior, they begin to associate correct behavior hinging on God's love relationship with them. Do you understand how this works? So if I go to my wife and, and I'm talking to her and, and I want her to, to do something and I, and I tie together my love for her on the basis of her fulfilling something, so if I say, honey, I love it when you cook good meals. When you cook terrible food, it just makes me want to not love you anymore. Right? I'm communicating to her that, that my love for her is tied to her cooking good food. Luckily, I married a wonderful cook. This is not always the case. But she has got... <laughs> and I'm going to be eating hamburger helper with Justin for a long time now. Lo siento, mi amor. Speaking Spanish, that way you don't understand it, neither do I. And so anyway, it's, wow, that went off the rails quick. Biblically, when we begin to think about this, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, when we expect people to be perfect, then we're creating for ourselves people that cannot live up to this, and so they pretend that they have, right? We're creating people that, that act one way, but in reality, their hearts are very far from God. And so we're, we're creating these people who, who are hypocrites, when we call and demand and expect people to be perfect, then we're asking them, inviting them to be hypocrites in our midst. But, but when we come to people and say, recognize, I, I see that you're terribly flawed and so am I. God loved us. He called us in spite of our, our flawed nature. He has made us perfect in Christ. It's not that he expects us to be perfect, but he expects us to recognize that we are not, that only Jesus was, and then we lean on salvation from him and not salvation we've created for ourselves. Do you understand that? So Peter's really spent the last couple of verses building in this identity of who they are. If you look back at verse 9, he says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So we can tell people how great God is. And why do we tell people about how great God is? Because he has effected this cosmic transference for us. That formerly we were in our own ignorance, formerly we were captivated by our own lust, but he called us from darkness into light. And in the midst of this transfer, in the midst of this cosmic change God has effected for us, we can't help but tell people about how great he is and how great he's been to us and how much he has changed us. So Peter comes back to it once more. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we've got to understand where we are. And the first thing that we've got to understand within this passage is something that we would likely skip over. He comes to them and he says, You are beloved. Christian, do you recognize that as you sit here this morning that you serve a heavenly father who is not disappointed in you? You serve a heavenly father who witnessed all the stuff you did this week, all the ways that you rebelled against him, but he is not disappointed in you. You are beloved by him through his son, 
So he writes to this, this group of people spread across these five different cities, all experiencing uh, turmoil of what it is to live in the Roman Empire, all experiencing the angst, all experiencing the persecution, all experiencing just, just failure on a, on a day-to-day. Some days they, they stand up to the persecution, other days they fail. And in the midst of all these things, he writes to them and he says, you are beloved. So we recognize on any given week we've disappointed our wife, we've disappointed our husband, we've disappointed our family, haven't lived up to what we think our name should mean, we haven't lived up to what it means to be a Christian, and we feel broken, we feel apart. There's forgiveness for the Christian. But recognize God's love to you isn't dependent upon your day-to-day perfection. His love to you is constant, and in that constancy, he calls you to recognize where you are in him. So he writes to this group of people who are very much similar to ourselves. They're not getting it all right. They're not all perfect. And in their imperfection, in their frailty, he writes to them, he says, you are loved by God. You've got to understand that. You're not working to earn God's love, but Jesus Christ in his death on the cross brought God's love to bear in your life. She writes, he says, look, you're beloved, but recognize your situation's not all that great. You are sojourners and exiles. You know, Peter started with this idea back in chapter 1 and verse 1. He said, to those who are elect exiles in the diaspora. And so we really began to develop this understanding of who we are and where we are. And we recognize that just as he wrote to people, and he's not talking about this physical dispersion, this physical exile that they're in, but they're in in a sense, in a very real sense, they're in the midst of a spiritual exile. They are spiritual sojourners. Can I tell you this morning that if you've never heard me say it before, you need to hear this, you need to hear me on this. You're in exile if you're a Christian. There's a reason that no matter which country you live in and how moral they are, that unless their leader is God... It's always going to be a foreign context for you. This is why it always feels a little bit awkward. This is why we always feel a little bit disappointed in our leaders because they never, ever measure up to the perfection of God in heaven. And as a Christian, your first place of loyalty is to a kingdom that you've never lived in. And it's to a king who submitted his life to bring you into his kingdom. While you were formerly distant and far off from him, he submitted his life, allowed humanity, this thing he created, to put him to death. He submitted himself to the place of death. And he brought you into his kingdom. And it's in the midst of Christ's kingdom that we live as sojourners and exiles here. Our citizenship lies in heaven, amen? We're strangers and exiles. And so we boldly declare, sometimes with tears, this is not our home. So when we see our family lives wrecked, when we see our, our, our spouse leaves us, when we see our children die, we recognize this is not how it should be because this place is not our home. The earth is corrupt and fallen because humanity rebelled against God. And so we live in a place that is not our ultimate home. And we look forward to a place that will one day be. So he writes to this this collective, this group living in modern-day Turkey, and he reminds them of of their position before God, their love. He reminds them of their place in society. You are sojourners and exiles. All these things are temporary. They're all passing and fleeting and moving away, but that does not make the pain any less real. 
That doesn't make our, our compunction, our desire to rebel against God any less real. So he writes to them, and look at, look at his word of instruction to them. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against the soul. Now this morning, we're going to look at it from one particular vantage point. But what I want you to understand is that these passions of the flesh, and you may hear us talk this morning about pornography, and you say, that's not my issue. We all have something wrangling against us, whether it's self and pride. I want to be recognized as having all my stuff together, and, and I don't want people to be disappointed in me, or if they really knew the real me, that they wouldn't want to be friends with me, they wouldn't want to associate with me, they'd largely be disappointed. Whether it's the issue of pride, whether it's the issue of money, there in the, within the scriptures there's this, this dichotomy that shows up. And we see the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. All those things you see with your eyes are those things of the flesh. The, th- the works of the spirit has wrought, has produced life in you, and the works of the flesh seek to produce death in you. So this isn't exclusively, Peter is not writing this exclusively to describe things of a sexual nature. But one of the things we recognize that within the church, within our prevailing culture at large, the issue of pornography is so incredibly devastating and I feel like I would be negligent if I didn't address it and address it at some length here today okay so just recognize I take no joy I take no delight in bringing these things to you but both outside the church and inside the church pornography is this cancer that is eating us alive so we're going to spend some time talking about it and then we're going to show you a way out if pornography is your issue, Heath Lambert's book is phenomenal. CR provides a phenomenal accountability ministry for you. I would love to meet with you and visit with you. We have other counselors on staff who would love to talk with you and help you walk up out of this sin, okay? I want you to hear that on the first side. Recognize this. We love you. Just as God loves you, we too love you. I'm not judging you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not ashamed of you. Our hearts break for you. Pornography is a huge issue. When you begin to think of it in terms of just how big it is as an industry, in 2015 it was a $97 billion industry. This is big. Just a few days ago, the country of Iran released what would be their upcoming budget for a whole country. Coincidentally, it's also $97 billion. This is an industry that is making unbelievable sums of money, prostituting people in the, made in the image and the likeness of God and using them for perverse, perverted ends. This is what they've done. They've taken sex, which is something God created to be enjoyed within the confines of a marriage relationship. And what they've done is they've cheapened it. They've taken it to the side and said, you can enjoy this without all the stuff that comes with marriage, without strings. This is such a colossal lie. There are absolutely strings attached. There is devastation to behold. Let's continue to think about how, how big this is. $97 billion. One web portal clocked in $2.4 million viewers an hour 2.4 million people i mean these these numbers these ideas are so big they're so hard for us to really wrap our minds around now, let's think in terms of number of hours of content watched 
in the year 2015, OneWeb Portal recorded that they had 4.392 billion hours of content viewed. 4.392 billion. Now, this is an insane number, right? None of us have this much money. None of us are able to comprehend how long this is. And so you boil this down into hours, into days, into years. Listen to this. Over 500,000 years worth of content watched on one web portal in one year. Now, whether you're a young earther and you believe the earth somewhere around six, 8,000 years old or you're an old earther, nobody believes that humanity, homo sapiens, if you, if you want to kind of get into this, were living 500,000 years ago. But somehow, within one year, our sexual appetites were such that we were able to watch more pornographic film in that one year than humanity's ever lived on the earth, whether you believe in evolution or you believe that God spun things up 8,000 years ago. It's unbelievable. Let's talk about terms of, of kind of devastation in this for our country. See, in the year 2006, in a random sample, it was shown that 58 million Americans viewed pornography on the Internet. Jumped 10 years ahead, jumped 10 years ahead to the year 2016, and what we find is that it was 107 million now, that's a, a large increase, and that's largely situated around the, the increase in, in availability of broadband and the mobile devices. And so what we find is that there's this huge explosion, but still we think of it, Matt, this is such a large number. How can we, how can we break this down? How do we understand this? Well, our, our current population sits at about 320 million. Porn viewing in the year 2015-2016 was about a third of that. So you go to Walmart, one out of every three people you see is struggling with this. A lot of churches you sit in. This church, we have men, we have women that struggle with this. This is their issue. This is where they're struggling. The struggle is real. It's not in some foreign county. It's not in Quinlan. It's not in Tewakadi. It's here in Greenville. It's in our homes. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our schools, both Greenville Christian and Greenville High School. It's in Rockwall High School. It's in Fate High School. It's in the elementary schools. The average age that a male gets to see these images is 12. That means we know it's younger and we know it's older. 12 years old. Some friend walks in and says, look, my parents got me a cell phone. Let me search. Valerie and I are sitting in the house a couple of weeks ago, and, and we don't let our kids use our devices unsupervised. So just before you begin judging me, just stop. And so we're on the couch together, and, and one of our kids, is, he's obsessed that Siri know how our family is related. If you have an iPhone, it's a worthless deal, but you can say, my dad's name is so-and-so, so you can pick it up and say, call Big Papa, or you know, however you want to call your dad. And so he says, Siri, you know, uh, my dad's name is, and, and it's this and that, and she didn't understand him, and so she searched the web. The third result down there said, I had sex with my father. So we take the phone. He didn't read it. He didn't understand what was going on. The kids are a half second away from viewing unlimited amounts of pornography. The struggle is real. The problem is real. They did a random study. Look at, uh, at 300 different scenes from individual porn films. 90% of these depicted violence and aggression towards women. 
And the response of the women in these images was neutral to positive. Can I tell you that, that as you're viewing pornography, or as those around us are viewing pornography, children are viewing pornography, they're training their minds to view aggression and violence towards women as normal or positive. It's devastating. It's devastating. It's an industry that thrives on demeaning women. It's an industry that makes its money and its bet on devaluing women, on taking these, these precious creatures who are made in the image and the likeness of God and full worthy of all our honor and respect and finding them to be the end of some type of sexual exploitation. It's awful. The industry survives and thrives because we're sinful. This is where it begins to get hard. So most of these young men who begin to look at this uh, content at age 12, we recognize that, that of them, by the time they reach college, 90% of men and a third of women have viewed pornography in the preceding year. It's unbelievable numbers. Unbelievable percentage. So you think about it, if you're raising daughters, you have nothing but daughters, the likelihood, the chances that your daughter will grow up to marry a young man who's never been affected by this is so incredibly remote. So this young man has been engaging in this pursuit. He's been watching this material. He's been taking it in. His parents haven't been supervising him or whatever. And his brain, the reward center of his brain, is being programmed to draw delight from this type of perverse material always moving towards more violence, always moving towards more sick and more twisted, and it's being normalized in his mind. And your daughter's going to marry a boy that this is what he's grown up thinking is normal. This is what he's grown up being programmed to understand. Now, Time Magazine, it was the cover of their, of their magazine a couple of months ago, and they said porn, a threat to virility. They didn't, they didn't recognize it being a threat to morality, but a threat to virility. The author had this stunning statement. She said, a growing number of young men are convinced that their sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains are virtually, listen to this, marinated in porn when they were adolescents. Their generation has consumed explicit content in quantities and varieties never before possible on devices designed to deliver content swiftly and privately, all in an age when their brains are more plastic, more prone to permanent change than later in life. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a largely unmonitored, decade-long experiment in sexual conditioning. The problem is real. The author makes it to the end of the article... And she quotes this man who's, who's struggling to, to quit pornography. Now, this isn't written from a Christian vantage point. Understand that. This is written just from men, secular men, who the problem for them is that now they can no longer have sex with as many different women as possible because they've been trained, their minds, to only receive sexual stimulation from a device. So this guy writes, he says, when I think about it, I've wasted years of my life looking for a computer or a mobile phone to provide something it's not capable of providing. See, the problem's not looking to these devices for satisfaction. The problem is looking outside marriage for those things that should only be held in marriage. Can I tell you that, teenagers, if you're struggling with the issue of pornography, recognize that what you're doing today, 
what you're doing today is building a foundation for your marriage. If you're a single person in here, those things that you're doing today are building a foundation for your marriage. If you wait to get in marriage and then lay a good biblical foundation, you've waited too long. You've waited too late. Parents, if you're waiting for your kids to bring it up to you and say, Mom, I went to school today and and little Jimmy showed me this or little Susie showed me that, you're waiting too long. We have to start so much earlier than we might ever think that we would have. If you wait till 12, you've waited too long. If you wait till 10, sadly, you've waited too long. There are great resources available that walk through exactly how to talk to your children about sex and sexuality. If you wait for one of their peers to have this conversation, conversation with them, you're waiting too long. You're waiting too long. The issue of pornography is one of these things that that makes its way into largely the hearts of men and is absolutely devastating for them because they see uh, no open forum, no place to go into share. I mean, we all kind of long for the sin of, oh, I'm just prideful, you know, that's that's, that's my big thing. Too good-looking, make too much money. Oh, me, that's my cross to carry. But when it gets to be these really painful issues of, of pornography... When it gets to be these issues of of sexual sin, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, we feel that these are the inward burdens that we have to carry and that there's absolutely no way that we can ever have any type of freedom from them. I'm so sorry you believe that lie. The gospel of Jesus Christ was designed and applied to our lives so that we might find freedom from sin, not be struggling with it over the course of our lives. There is freedom from sin, but it's only located in the person and place of Jesus Christ. So all of these plans and purposes to, to, for these men in, in the Time Magazine articles to divest themselves of, of pornography and to replace it with sex with a live woman, these are ultimately flawed. Because what they're looking to do is to replace one thing with another. What they need is to surrender their whole lives to Jesus Christ that he might completely change their lives and call them from darkness and into light. But what we recognize is that even within the church we find ourselves struggling with with these issues. And so I want to go to just a couple of places. I'd love to be an encouragement to you this morning. Maybe this is your struggle. Maybe you have another struggle that you're working on. I, I want to be an encouragement to you this morning, okay? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 and starting in verse 9. Paul writes and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And see, he he pretty much just lumps all of us in there at some point. He says, if this is who you are and these are the things you're engaged in, recognize this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what it is to be outside of God's forgiveness. Corinth was this hotbed where they engaged in all these things. So this this would be like reading the top ten list of their weekend for them. We'll not inherit the kingdom of God. But look look at this incredible grace in verse 11. He says, in such 
were some of you. So we recognize in coming to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that we find our past firmly located there. It's in the past. It's not defining and working to make our present. We aren't beholden to our past. He says, of such were some of you. But look what's happening. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What we recognize is that in coming to salvation, in coming to Jesus, we confess these things of who we used to be. And he cleanses us and he makes us whole. And he justifies us before God and he sanctifies us before God. You have been made holy. You have been forgiven. You have been restored. This is who you were. This is not who you are now. If you struggle with this issue, there is freedom from this issue. There is freedom from sin, but freedom from sin is only ever located and found in the person of Jesus. Peter, when he wrote and he says, these things are the passions of the flesh and they war against your soul, what we need to understand in there is that we're not ultimately engaged in a battle of fleshly warfare, but we're engaged in a battle of spiritual warfare. And the weapons of spiritual warfare are ultimately for the Christian found in their salvation to Jesus Christ. Seeking to overcome these things using, using uh, just basic accountability, using a web, something on your web browser to change it and, and, and sharing all these things with your wife. These, some of these things are good parameters to put in place. But if this is where you're looking to for freedom, if this is where you're looking to for relief, you'll never find it. Your sin will always find a way to work around your resourcefulness. Do you understand that? And so what we need to do is find freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in our ability to make it hard for us to sin. Let's look at one more place, 1 John. I'll just read this. You don't have to go there. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 80 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Each one of us in this room struggle with some sin. Some of us, the sin in our hearts is pornography. but all of us in this room struggle with some sin. If you look at it and you say, look, I don't have any sin. I, this isn't really a big issue for me. I don't really have any, Matt. I'd say big issues. First John 1 John 1.8 is calling you a liar. It's saying that the truth has no part in you, no part in your life. Recognize this. Each one of us struggles with some sin. Admit it. Confess it. Ask God to bring healing and cleansing into your life. Because look at this. He gets into verse 9 and he says this. If we confess our sins, if you tell God that you sinned, if you confess your sin to those around you that you have sinned against, impacted against. This is what he goes on to say. He says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then more than that, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of us use confession as this type of mental appeasement. And so I go in and Valerie's looking for Oreos in, in the pantry or something. I'm like, I, I ate all of them. I ate like both packages of the double stuff, the mega stuff, and, and then some of them little fruity flavors. I didn't even like them, but I saw them. I felt compelled to eat them. I ate all of them. Oh, I feel better. Actually, I feel sick to my stomach, but you understand some of us treat God in the same way where we go to him and we say, God, I just want to lay this stuff out there for you. Oh, man, clean slate. Let's move on. Let's move on. 
but we never actually take into account the understanding of what he's writing in there. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so our understanding is we've received grace and the forgiveness of sins, but we've not received, we've not incorporated this idea of transforming grace in our hearts to help us overcome repeatedly, perpetually falling back into these same patterns and places of sin. We need to understand that God's not just about the mental appeasement and wiping your slate clean, but he's about transforming and changing your life, and that forevermore. Amen? Let me go to one more place. I hadn't decided if I was going to go there, but let me just go to one more thing. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Jesus has made it through the Beatitudes. We're going to come right back here in a second. But he, he gets to the issue of, of lust and adultery in verse 27. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pride is welling up in our hearts and anytime we look at pornography, we're ultimately engaged in adultery. You're either cheating on your future spouse or you're cheating on the one that you're currently with, but you're certainly engaged in sinful behavior. Look what Jesus calls him to. He says, if your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is talking about how incredibly devastating sexual sin is. And he calls them not to actually ripping out their eye, not to actually cutting off their hand, but he, he, he's trying to drive it into this sense of, of this is how incredibly important getting this right is. Let me just tell you as, as a word, if, if you struggle looking at pornography on your phone or your iPad, get rid of it. Get a flip phone, tell everybody you wanted to be a hipster. I mean, whatever it is, <laughs> don't put yourself in places to make stupid decisions. If you live in a cave, if you live in isolation from other people, expect nobody to be able to see your sin. But God always sees your sin. As Christians, we live life in community with one another, and so we recognize when our brothers and sisters are struggling, and we don't look at them and judge them. We look at them and beckon them to walk up out of it, to walk in grace, to walk in freedom, to walk in truth, to walk in light, to be who God made them to be, not who this world is trying to twist and form them into feeling guilty that they now are. There is freedom and there is release in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to find that. We need to locate it. Let's jump back into 1 Peter. Peter wrote to them and he said, this is who you are. You have these, these passions of the flesh. You need to abstain. You need to stay in this fight for the fight is real. Stay in this fight for the fight is real. He said these passions, they war against your soul. Now the way he's using this idea, this word warrior, is they have the intensity and desire to put you to death. It desires to kill, to mutilate, to destroy your soul. And we see this happen in all kinds of marriages. We see this happen in all kinds of ministries and relationships where people submit themselves to the passions of the flesh and they don't recognize that the war, that the battle is real. There's a real battle being waged with, for our souls each and every day. And as Christians, we need to be those who call out to God daily and say, Father, equip me for battle because I recognize these passions seek to destroy me. These passions aren't seeking to build you up, and it's not about harnessing them into the right relationship. It is about recognizing that when their end is your death, there is no good to them. You understand that? Now, he ties their abstaining 
to their broader culture, verse 12. So we're abstaining from these things. We're keeping from them. The way that Christians speak, the way that Christians eat, the way that Christians live should be decidedly different from the prevailing culture around them. If you work with the same people for any length of time, they should be able to tell and readily recognize that you are a Christian. On the one hand, it's on the basis of what you proclaim, verse 9. He's transferred us into these things. On the basis of this transference, we proclaim the excellencies of his name. So it's not just relational evangelism. Praying that the people around you are incredibly perceptive. Oh, you know, I wore my, my, my Jesus shirt today. Okay, well, not really, but I wore my Jesus cufflinks. And I know if they look really close and they have incredible vision, they'll see the cross there. And then they'll say, you know, I've never seen you throw coffee in somebody's face. You must be a Christian. I am a Christian. Was it the cufflinks that gave it away? Was it, that, was it that slightly tinged Christmas card I sent you three years ago with the verse in the bottom right hand of the corner that you got a magnifying glass out? You could see. Was it when I said Happy Easter to you? Or when I continued to say Merry Christmas when everybody else around us was saying Happy Holidays? Is it this? Is it this that converted you? And I said, No, it's your lunchbox. It's got the Jeremiah 29 11 on it, that, you know, whatever. And so when we get into this, we recognize that our conduct needs to match our communication. Now what he's talking about in here is that our conduct needs to to give weight and credence to our communication. If you're never communicating the gospel, then you're being disobedient to Jesus Christ. That's just a simple statement. We can move on. But if you never communicate the gospel, you're being disobedient to Jesus Christ, and you're being disingenuous disingenuous to what he's created you to be. You proclaim his excellencies. Why? Because he's moved you from darkness to light. For the Christian, there's no other choice. You have to communicate the gospel. It's what it is to be a Christian. But he gets into this and he says, not only do you need to communicate it, but you need to live it out. He says in verse 12, keep your conduct. And he's talking about over and over again. We're constantly working on our conduct. We're constantly modifying our behavior to put ourselves into submission to Jesus. Not so we look better to those around us, but so that we live up to the name that he's given us. Because our great desire is to live out all the various implications of what it means to be a Christian. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So in your reading of the word, in your reading of God's word, your prayer should be, God, help me to put into practice the things I see in your word. Help me to to thirst. Help me to hunger for righteousness. Help the fruits of the Spirit to really be these things that are shown to be manifest in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, well, self-control, who needs it anyway? And so this idea that we're over and over again looking at these things, saying, God, would you make these things true in me? Would you make these things true in my life? And would you give me the grace to walk in these things, the strength and equipping to walk in these things? Some of us have amazing opportunities each and every day to live among lost people. It's your husband, it's your wife, it's your coworker, they're your children, the little heathens that they are. And you're modeling the gospel before them. We're modeling the gospel for them. And one of the things, one of the most beautiful things we can do in modeling the gospel with people is to show them that we're not perfect and that we fail. There are times and there are ways when it is appropriate to share with a non-believer your struggles, your difficulties. Issues and problems in your marriage. Don't give them this understanding and perception that everything's perfect in your home. 
Don't use it as an opportunity to browbeat your spouse either or to join in on the, on the whining session. But there are ways and opportunities where you might prayerfully consider showing those people around you how, what it means to be strong even though we're weak and where that strength comes from in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things he says in here, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, in essence, you're going to be maligned. Some of you, God willing, you'll be maligned for standing strong for Jesus. But others of you are going to be maligned because you do wrong things. You do wrong things. You're cheating on your spouse. You're lying. There's no discernible difference between you and all the lost people you spend time with. So some of you, when those in your community, those in your company speak ill of you and talk bad about you, it's true. It's true. How painful is that? I made it to the end of my first semester in college. And my atheist roommate looks at me and he is just, just brimming with pride and excitement for me. And he says, look at how far you come. Look at how far you've come this semester. You came up here and you, and you weren't going to drink and you weren't going to smoke and you weren't going to do all these things. And you drink more than everybody. You smoke more than everybody. You've engaged in more lewd practices than anybody. And he is brimming with pride at, at, the, at the moral advancements, immoral advancements that I've made. I was devastated. This is a great moment where God spoke to me through an atheist to call me back to orthodoxy. He wasn't speaking of me as an evildoer. At least not in such a way as to beat me down. But his accurate description of my perverse behavior was so shocking, so personally disgusting to me, not because I was embarrassed, but because at that moment I recognized what it is to have failed and sinned against a holy God. And I was broken in that. I was broken in that. By God's grace, he again brought me back to walk with him. By God's grace, he allowed me to walk in forgiveness of those things. Some of us are spoken against by non-believers as evildoers, and it's just. But what he writes in here is that some of us will be spoken against as evildoers, and they're going to look at our lives, they're going to scrutinize our lives, they're going to get out and, and, and want to see our tax filings for the last five years and our pay stubs and say, okay, well, it looks like you didn't cheat the IRS, but what about speeding? Do you ever go five miles an hour over? And we're like, oh, okay, you got me there. Everybody does that, though. Nobody's ever gotten a ticket for that. Look what he's tying it to, though. He says that when they speak against you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of the reasons we seek to live holy lives in the midst of a perverse community is for the effects of evangel evangelization. And so that we might be sharing the gospel with them. Jesus, speaking to his followers in Matthew 5.16, says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Some of us, by God's grace, may have an opportunity to tell those why our lives, is diff lives are different. And what he's writing in is saying here is, use your life as an example and an opportunity for evangelism. So the question before us is, are we willing to submit ourselves? Are we willing to abstain among those things that everybody in our culture is enjoying? And are we looking and, and, and willing to keep ourselves 
in a lifestyle that is honorable before unbelievers. Because as Peter describes it here, both of these things have profound impact, not just for us, but both of these things have profound impact on all the lost people that we encounter. Eternity is at stake for somebody else and the way that you live your life. I can tell you that I completely blew it with my atheist roommate. I called him some months later and apologized and described to him how broken I was on the way that I lived before him. And told him there's a God that loves him. A God that cares for him and just as that I had been forgiven in salvation, so too I've been forgiven for the way that I lived my life before him. God loved him. He sent his son to die for him that even in his ignorance and apathy would still beckon him to come. He didn't want anything to do with it. He said, it seems to me that you're just reacting against the decisions you made. It seems to me you had a pretty good time in the midst of those things, and I'm not ready to feel bad about anything yet. I pray that you learn from my example. I've had opportunities where people have seen my life, and they've called, and they have surrendered their lives to the Lord. Man, that's amazing. Over the course of my life, I still remember Benny and how my life was a counterexample that has kept him from coming to know the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we submit our hearts to you. We ask that you would move in our hearts. God, show us those ways that we need to abstain from some passion that maybe we haven't even recognized or realized is warring against our souls. God, show us ways that we can seek to minister to our brothers and sisters who are stuck in the middle of these things and struggling. And some of them, they feel like they are certainly, if they've not lost the battle, that they're headed towards losing the war. So God, help us to be a people who bear up underneath the burdens of others. Help us to be a people who walk in grace and call those around us to do the same. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to call us from darkness to light and also to bring us back to fresh and renewed confession before you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have for the movement of your Spirit. God, I pray that in these next moments that as we turn our hearts towards song, that as we give ourselves to responding to the application of your word applied to our lives, that your Spirit will continue to fall in this place and it would guide us and walk us Father, that will walk us in leading to confession and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.